Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And we have a, ooh, we have a weird one for you this week. Um, because it, And this is one that is weird in so many ways. Because sometimes the, the weird element of a Weird House uh, Cinema selection, it's about like a weird monster, a weird character performance. Uh, this one has weirdness in its structure in its in its values it's a, it's a strange film to behold it is 1970s scream and scream again i could not tell you what this movie was about until about 15 minutes from the end and then at the end there's a twist that really does kind of make sense of everything. But up until then, this is one of the most disjointed, confusing movies I have ever watched. Yeah, this this movie throws you into the deep end, and and it and it's going to watch and see if you can swim. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, you, you're and in a way, to to a major degree, this film 
is such an immersive experience because of that, because you're, it feels like the guardrails are off in terms of structure. Um, so I, I greatly enjoyed this one. It's, it's one that, uh, has a certain standing in, uh, cult film status and, uh, among B movie enthusiasts for its weirdness. Uh, Ebert referred to this film as Goddard for the masses, <laughs> though, uh, I'm not sure I completely understand what he's saying though, or think it's the best way to describe the film, but yeah, it's a hard one to nail down. And it's also one where if you look at the way it's promoted, uh, you're going to go into this expecting, oh, it's, it, the, we're going to watch a horror film that has uh, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing in it. Um, well, let's see what this is about. But it's really not that. It's more of a conspiracy science fiction film starring a handful of lesser-known actors uh, with some cameos, for the most part, by these three individuals. I think I can understand what, what he means by Godard for the masses in that uh, okay, so I guess Godard is uh, like French New Wave cinema, right? Mm-hmm. Like art films that are non-traditional structures. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna ask weird existential questions. They're gonna be of a different composition than the films you were used to before. And this is in that tradition. You could say it is structured like an art film. It is. It doesn't have an easy to follow linear plot like you would see in a standard genre thriller, which is what it sort of turns out to be in the end. Even though, like, it takes you most of the length of the movie to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, and I and I don't I don't have much familiarity with uh, with uh, Godard myself, but. I certainly, when I compare this film to like pure artsy cinema, pure uh, psychedelic cinema, there's there's almost like too much freedom in some of those type ventures where it just becomes a you know fall from one uh, weird sequence to the next. This one seems to be to have an intelligent structure. This film is like a slime mold making its way through a labyrinth. Um, you know that there's some sort of logic involved in its path. Uh, or you trust that there is, uh, but you're not sure exactly like what how this thing works without a brain. It's a it's a film that I would compare favorably to 1973's Psychomania in some regards. Uh, you can't really compare anything directly to Psychomania, but I feel like it hits similar notes of the weird. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. Now, another thing this film has going for it is this is very much a Hollywood acid movie. Uh, this is a, oh. a subject we covered on Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, a few years back. Yeah, the acid doesn't show up until about two-thirds of the way through, but then it is the star of the third act. From there on, it's like acid in every scene. Right, and by acid, we don't mean psychedelic. We mean uh, good old dissolving acid, a big vat of acid. In fact, uh, the wonderful um, uh, 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 promise from the poster, the original poster for this film, is triple distilled horror as powerful as a vat of boiling acid. Oh, I'm glad they got it up to a boil. Yeah, you want to boil your acid for maximum uh, 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 destruction of organic tissues. Um, Uh, Without Scream and Scream Again, there would be no Batman forever. Yeah. Uh, Also, this poster is pretty great because you also see a body dissolving in acid. It's it's a really, really tight poster. I don't know if I put it on my wall, uh, but it's, it's it's pretty cool. I agree. But wait, what does triple distilled horror mean? Well, most of your horror movies are only um, only go through a single or double distillation process, Joe. Uh-huh. This film has been <laughs> triple distilled. This is the Crystal Skull Vodka of, uh, of films. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. I have no idea what this means, but uh, it's a strong promise. I mean, that's really, I think, the the ultimate. I love it when when a film is promoted as as, as something well beyond anything that can be tested uh, or quantified. All right, uh, I'm going to go ahead and mention where you can where you can watch this uh, in case anyone out there has has heard the, the pitch and they're like, "Well, I want in on this." Well, you can rent or purchase this film digitally most places. It's also out on DVD and Blu-ray from uh, KL Studio Classics. It's Kino Lorber. They always do a great job with these. Uh, I, I watched it streaming myself. Yeah, I did too. Now, I think we should issue a disclaimer near the top. Uh, I guess I sort of already alluded to this, but the, our, our discussion will necessarily include spoilers for this movie because I think there's literally no way to talk about it that makes sense without spoiling the twist ending because nothing makes sense until the twist ending. And then it kind of does. So, uh, so, so I don't know, like we, we couldn't really have a coherent discussion of the themes or plot of the movie without spoiling it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. There's like, what can you say other than I was confused by this scene? <laughs> and I will also advise we're about to listen to some trailer audio here, but I would advise against watching the trailer for this film before you go into it, because ultimately that that feeling of being lost, of not knowing where you're going, I thought that was one of the best payoffs of this movie. Yeah, totally. All right, let's have a listen. She wasn't just murdered, if you uh, know what I mean. Come on! How could he snap through a high tensile steel? He didn't. Eh? Look. All right. Well, shall we get into the people? responsible for scream and scream again we must we have no choice all right well let's start at the top uh, the director is gordon hessler who lived 1925 through 2014 german-born director of danish and english heritage who directed 1969's the oblong box 1970's cry of the banshee 1971's murders in the rue morgue and the 1973 ray harryhausen extravaganza the the golden voyage of sinbad which starred john philip law carolyn monroe and tom baker i think tom baker plays a sorcerer of some kind john philip law is Sinbad, um, and uh, I don't remember who Carolyn Monroe is in it. But yeah, th- this one, like all of the Ray Harryhausen movies, has some excellent stop-motion monsters. I don't know how well this one passes the modern cultural sensitivity test, but the, mm-hmm. the stop-motion effects are fantastic. There's one point where Sinbad's crew uh, seems to, they, they fight like an animated statue that seems to be based on uh, depictions of like Hindu gods with multiple arms, and these arms are all wielding swords during the fight. Uh, they're just monsters aplenty. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, I got to see that one on uh, the big screen at a drive-in theater many years ago. Let's see. Gordon Hessler uh, directed a slew of things. He directed quite a bit of TV uh, episodes of such shows as The Master. That's the Lee Van Cleef uh, ninja show. Uh, Mm. Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Chips, uh, and more. (laughs) He also directed a 1985 ninja movie titled Pray for Death, starring 80s ninja boom um, star Sho Kasugi. I don't know this one. Um, 
it's one I don't know if I've seen it in its entirety, but it has a very memorable uh, VHS bit of box art because it kind of looks like the Shredder from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and oh. he's he's staring right at you, uh, and you know that he's going to cut you with shurikens and stuff. Uh, so I I remember this this VHS box art staring back at me from when I was a kid. Oh, I just looked it up. Yes, the the mask on his helmet looks like a piece of grilling equipment. Yeah, it has sort of a, a metal face. Uh, mask going on. Very, very Shredder-esque. This seems like something... There would be an infomercial on this face mask for it's it's how you sear salmon or something. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I haven't seen it myself. I don't think I've seen it. Possible I saw parts of it on TV at some point or another. But if anyone out there is a fan, let us know. All right, let's get to the writing here. The screenplay was written by Christopher Wicking, who lived 1943 through 2008, a British screenwriter known for uh, some of the films we listed already. We're going to hear these titles again and again. Cry of the Banshee, Murder in the Rue Morgue, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, Absolute Beginners, and 1981's Lady Chatterley's Lover. I read that despite the fact that this movie is based on a novel, a lot of the uh, distinctive ideas in it actually come from the screenplay adaptation. Like, I think a lot of the Mm -hmm. conspiracy elements that we discover at the end are actually more the screenplay than the book it was based on. Yeah, and the book it's based on is The Disoriented Man by Peter Saxon. Now, you're probably wondering, well, who's this Peter Saxon guy? Well, He's nobody. He's not real. It's just a pen name used by various thriller authors from the 1950s through the 1970s, though I've read that The Disoriented Man in particular was mainly written by uh, a writer by the name of Stephen D. Francis and edited by W. Howard Baker, who originated the Saxon brand of pulp. Ah, so Peter Saxon is kind of a composite human built out of the parts of other humans. (laughs) Yeah, I guess you could say that. All right, let's get into the cast on this one. Uh, But like I said earlier, though, this one's kind of weird because if you went by billing, you just start with Cushing and Price and Lee. But they're not really the main characters. You don't spend a tremendous amount of time with them for the most part. Maybe Price more than the other two. But not not to say they're not important, uh, but they're not really the main characters. I want to start with the characters that we see more of in the film. Okay. All right, so first of all, we have... um, we have this character named uh, Detective uh, Bellavere, who uh, is played by Alfred Marks, who lived 1921 through 1996, a British comic actor and entertainer who, uh, in my opinion, is pretty great in this as a tired, grumpy police detective who has seen it all twice, is tired of it all, um, <laughs> and is going to let you know about it. Yes, but he's. This is a great performance because the character is. He's this bellowing blowhard who mm-hmm. uh, has. He's just always like dropping little comments about his, his police knowledge about what psychos are like, mm-hmm. and he. <laughs> um, he's got a great mustache. He, he he's good in this role. Yeah. Now, interestingly, this is probably his best known film role, but he did do a fair amount of TV and also appeared in such films as 1983's Fanny Hill and Ken Russell's 1977 film Valentino. Naming this character Belliver, uh, I thought was a great choice. It's kind of Dickensian naming, right? It's right. it's one of those where the character's name just sounds like their personality. Yeah, yeah. He does. He bellows a lot for sure. Now, uh, the next uh, character I want to mention is this Doctor David Sorrel, who is, I guess, as close to a central hero as we get in this film. Though yeah. I wouldn't rate him as being tremendously effective at foiling evil. 
No, in fact, he almost seems to be tempted to collaborate with evil yeah. at the very end until he's like, wait, the person you were going to dismember is somebody I've met? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's way more, like, you know, as as a hero in a film like this, you know, it's it's courtesy to listen to a villain monologue a little bit, at least. I mean, you, you know, it would be rude not to, right? Of course. But, but uh, Do- uh, Dr. Sorrel here, yeah, he seems to listen a little bit too much and be a little bit too eager um, uh, he's like, no, no, yeah, absolutely. Let's hear all about it. <laughs> it yeah, Price is giving a monologue like, I am not evil when I build these people out of other people's body parts. Uh, and Sorrel's like, no, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. Uh, it, so this, this actor, this is one of those guys that I'm not sure exactly who he looks like, but he looks like somebody else that I've seen in many more things. And I think that kind of uh, messes with me a little bit. But the actor here is Christopher Matthews. Uh, dates unknown as far as I could uh, find, but active from 1963 through 2006. Mostly did TV work, including roles on Doctor Who, Space 1999, and EastEnders. He also appears in 1970's Scars of Dracula, starring Christopher Lee, and 1971's See No Evil, starring Mia Farrow. I thought it was an interesting choice that he the char- the character is technically supposed to be a medical examiner. I think we mm-hmm. first meet him during an autopsy scene and I couldn't understand why he just sort of becomes an assistant to the detective for the rest of the movie. Like he's going to all the crime scenes. I I do love it when this happens in a film, um, generally a genre film of some sort, where somebody who should not be present at every stage of like a homicide investigation just it just becomes baked into the investigation. They just they just hang out long enough and they're just part of it. Well, you know what you know what happens here. He's taking it too personal. He is. He's he's taking it too personal for sure. All right, uh, another another person, and this is probably the closest thing we have to a central relatable character in the film, is policewoman Helen Bradford, who is frequently just in peril uh, due to the villains of the picture, uh, but is very much a likable screen presence for the most part, I would say. Yeah, so she plays a, a, an officer who goes undercover because the, one of the multiple plot threads in this movie is, hey, we've got some psychotic murderer who's just uh, who's just uh, killing women and drinking their blood. I know what we need to do. We need to put <laughs> one of our officers undercover as a as a partier at a London uh, psychedelic rock club, and then she will get picked up by the murderer, and then we'll let the murderer drink her blood a little bit, and then eventually we'll get in there and do something about it. Yeah, and Helen's like, sure, works for me. So, <laughs> Helen is played by Judy Bloom, born 1942, actor of stage, screen, and TV, who I think started off as a child actor based on her dates on IMDb. Mm. All right. Uh, despite all those wonderfully villainous uh, names on the poster, Cushing Lee and Price, uh, it's ultimately an actor by the name of Marshall Jones that really plays, I think, in my opinion, the most frightening character in the picture, uh, this guy by the name of Conrad's. Yes, and I thought this actor was also very good. He has a kind of uh, avioid face, a, a face like a predatory bird of some kind, yeah. and uh, and he and he uses it to great effect. He he is he is much menace. Yeah, he has this uh, this look on his face most of the movie where it's it's like he he just thought of a of something funny he could have said in the torture uh, <laughs> uh, inquiry that he was conducting earlier in the day. 
oh, I should have said don't get too attached to it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He's a total, total villain. But uh, uh, Marshall Jones' performance here, like he has a he has a, a real physically imposing stature. Uh, you know, he he looks like he towers over perhaps naturally most of the other actors uh, in the in the picture. So uh, yeah, I, I thought he was quite good in this. Um, this particular actor uh, lived uh, 1928 through 2007, um, appeared in the films Cry of the Banshee in 1970, Murders in the Rue Morgue 1971. Um, but this seems to be his his biggest role. Uh, if you've, you know, when you look into the pictures he's he's been in, this is the the one that seems to be best remembered. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the the main one where he played a central villain. I, I don't know that he really played this sort of role in other pictures, but uh, he excels here. He he's some kind of high level functionary in an unnamed Eastern European dictatorship. Yeah, that has this frightening trident as its uh, icon, uh, and, and and yeah, not not a trident like the uh, like the flag of Barbados, uh, like a scary one that looks like a devil's pitchfork. Yeah, well, so I actually interpreted that as three arrows, but that would be oh, yeah? weird imagery because a bit of uh, symbology of uh, the history of European politics. There, so the three arrows was a political symbol. In uh, like, uh, I think, 1920s, 30s Germany, but it was mm-hmm. the symbol of like the social democratic coalition that, mm-hmm. because the three arrows, I think, had something to do with uh, opposing uh, Nazism, monarchism and communism. Okay. Well, either way, it would make sense because I think in, I was reading that in the original novel, it's, a, it's supposed to be some sort of fictional German regime, and they made it – they went a little more vague with it in the, in the picture, which I ultimately like. It feels a lot more, you know, Kafka-esque to, to not have a particular name for this, uh, this country. It's just the uh, – uh, and maybe it, it, maybe it doesn't even have a name. Like that's the, the degree of, the, of the, uh, the totalitarianism here. It's just uh, uh, the, this place where the trident flag or the, the, the triple arrow flag reigns. All right. The next uh, major name in this movie is Michael Gothard, who plays Keith, uh, the alleged vampire killer. Let's take your standard Mick Jagger type, but then <laughs> creepify him by forty percent. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty great because he's yeah he's he's handsome, but in a dangerous way. You know, he's got that you, you don't completely trust him, and and of course we're led to believe that he's killing people and uh, and hunting them for sport at uh, at discos he has this ridiculous uh uh what can, what do you describe this shirt that he's wearing it's like a purple oh. pirate shirt yeah he's wearing like a lavender shiny satin frilly shirt and he's wearing it through a chase sequence that takes up the middle third of the movie so it's he's scrambling over rocks jumping through windows of abandoned buildings and uh driving around london running cars off the road all wearing this this purple satin shirt yeah so uh, yeah it's it's a great great performance um Michael Gothard, who lived 1939 through 1992, uh, went on to be known for a number of other films. Uh, this was apparently one of his big breakout roles. He'd previously been in some TV shows and a few films, such as the West German drama uh, Michael Kohlhaas, Der Rebel, from 1969, which starred David Warner. Um, but um, after this, he went on to some really memorable roles, including the demented exorcist and witch hunter Father Barre in Ken Russell's The Devils from 1971. And then he also plays this uh, 
I'm not sure. Is this a villain or a henchman, Joe, from 1981's uh, For Your Eyes Only, a James Bond film? This was a late uh, Roger Moore movie, and I think he plays an assassin in it. He's like a guy who – well, now I'm afraid I'm remembering this wrong. I I think he's a guy who like – he like puts a rifle together out of a briefcase that he carries around. Oh, that's always a good Bond villain move. Uh, The character's name, villain or henchman, and I think you're right. I think it's more of an assassin character, is Emil Leopold Locke. Uh, And – I, I've seen this movie, or at least a large chunk of it, but really the only thing that, that really I remember from it are Gothard's signature spectacles in this, uh, because uh, he has these, uh, uh, there's a curious shape to them, uh, and apparently he insisted on wearing them. He was like, no, no, this character needs something else. Um, and indeed, I, this is also something you see in The Devils. His character in that also has a pair of spectacles on. And there's something about Michael Gothard. Like, he's, he's, he's a great character actor. Uh, he's been in a number of roles that are memorable. But these two roles that really stand out are ones where he wears kind of weird glasses. They just put him over the top. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, So in the Bond movie, they're kind of octagons. Mm-hmm. And the way he's made up for the Bond role, he looks he looks a little bit Jagger still, a little bit Kinsky, but all creep. Yeah. Meanwhile, in um, The Devils, I'd say he looks a little bit Warren Zevon and yes. a little bit Klaus Kinsky. You know, it's... <laughs> But 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 strong Zevon vibes here, <laughs> at least to the just the, the the way the character looks, not so much the the way he acts. The glasses, however, I'm I mean I don't think it's unreasonable for a 17th century Frenchman to potentially have spectacles of some sort, but I don't think they would have looked this modern and stylish. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but um, I think this was more of an artistic choice uh, on uh, Russell's part for the devils. You don't you don't think this uh, this psychotic convent had a had a flower child here and there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but still very memorable role for sure. Um, he, he he had a number of other prominent roles. Uh, he appears in the 1970s Three Musketeers movies. He pops up in 1985's Life Force, as well as a pair of Michael Caine movies of note: 1988's Jack the Ripper and 1971's The Last Valley. Uh, his last film before his untimely death was the 1992 TNT Frankenstein adaptation starring Patrick Bergen and Randy Quaid as the monster. I've mentioned this film before on the show because I, I fondly remember watching it on TNT when I was a kid. I've got to see this sometime. You bring it up every chance you get. This, this must know. be worth it. Maybe we've we've at least jokingly talked about doing an entire month of Frankenstein movies sometime. So uh, who knows? Maybe we'll have to pull the trigger on that. Oh, yeah. We could get Frankenstein meets the space monster in there. Oh, that. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. 
Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right. Um, we're not going to spend as much time with these three, but yes, the, the three top build actors in this are Price, Lee, and Cushing. Uh, let's start with Vincent Price because uh, he plays his character, Dr. Browning, 
which is probably uh, probably the most important of these three characters. Uh, I guess you could say. Certainly, I think this is the character that had maybe has the most memorable screen time. And uh, it's uh, it's essentially a sort of Vincent Price role you'd expect, uh, some sort of deranged scientist or doctor, but with some fun twists uh, that set the role apart. He does a beard in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and ultimately, you know, we were talking about how he says to the to our uh, our doctor character, he tells him, "I'm not evil," um, you know, and and we kind of buy into it. Like he's not acting completely evil, though he's doing some very um, bizarre and um, questionable things. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he openly admits to doing a lot of murder and stuff, but he he seems to think that it's all for the greater good. The greater good being. Uh, replacing humans with like uh, super beings made by experimental surgeries. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, ultimately, the the, the big reveal is that there is a, a secret organization, multinational organization, working in the shadows to build new people out of the parts of regular humans, and thus create <laughs> kind of super people who yeah. will continue to carry on this conspiracy in order to make a better world. I think in an earlier draft of this, we discover at the end that, that it's actually aliens controlling the whole thing, but then that was taken out. And I, I'm ultimately glad they did, because if it had just been aliens, yes, it would have maybe made more sense. But this movie is so cryptic and confusing, getting to the, the, the final scenes, that I like that a lot of that mystery remains, that we're left trying to ponder, like, what what does this mean? Like, what is a composite person? And why... In the context of this film, are they so different? Why are they? Why do they seem to have super intelligence? When we saw where the brain com- came from, there's no indication that you did anything to the brain and combined parts of a brain. No, you were just going to get Judy's brain and put it in here. Uh, by the same token, how does it make them super strong when they're just taking one arm off of a jogger and one arm off of a cop and putting them on a different body? Like, was it just like, oh, this jogger happened to have the strongest arm in the world and we're going to use that? <laughs> and, you know, like, where does yeah. the super strength come from? Yeah, yeah. There a lot of questions remain. Now, uh, I, won't, I won't get into, into Price's uh, bio too much here because we've talked about, we talked about him previously on The Abominable Dr. Fibes. Uh, Price lived 1911 through 1993, famous for such films as The Tingler, The House on Haunted Hill. He also did a lot of fun TV uh, roles. He was on Night Gallery. He did The Muppet Show. And he did TV commercials for a number of brands, including the No Jelly Candy Bar. Is it now a recurring segment that any time we do a Price movie, we have to review at least one Price commercial? Yes, I, I think it should be. It's, okay. uh, it's part of his legacy. And ooh, the, the No Jelly Candy Bar does not disappoint. It's basically a Vincent Price talking head commercial like a lot of these are. But I was really intrigued by the product here. I, had to, I was reading about it on CollectingCandy.com. Uh, there's a post about it with a whole bunch of images from the marketing campaign. It's a bar from the makers of Almond Joy and Mounds that seem to be, it's marketing itself uh, in, at, a, at, a, at a client base that I'm not sure really existed. People who were fed up with there being jelly in their peanut butter themed snack bars and yes. candy bars. Yes. They were like, why do they keep putting jelly in here? I want one that's no <laughs> jelly, that's just peanut butter. This this is the commercial, the pitch. He holds up the bar and he's like, if you have children, you know that they love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> we must dispense with that wretched jelly. <laughs> Was this a thing? I, 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 it just seems it doesn't make much sense to me. Like, uh, I mean, are you making... Uh, 
uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, where do you even go with this? Was there a jelly shortage that made jelly really expensive at the time? Yeah, or maybe like just the peanut butter lobbying group was trying to like badmouth the jelly group because they want more peanut butter on those sandwiches and not jelly. So they're probably saying stuff like, well, you know what? Jelly is just full of sugar. Unlike peanut butter, slab it on. (laughs) They're they're making up the difference with jelly. They're they're cutting into our profits. Yeah. So I don't know if anyone. I I, I have no. Memory, I think this was this is a bar that was well done as a product by the time I was born. So if anyone out there remembers the no jelly candy bar uh, and can uh, tell us what it was like, uh, let us know. The, again, this collectingcandy dot com a blog post on it. it's pretty interesting because there's all sorts of strange promotional material including a what is it like yes to nixon no to jelly <laughs> a <laughs> pin that one would wear wow uh so based on my extensive deep research on the no jelly candy bar uh i don't think that it was actually just straight up peanut butter in that candy bar i think it was more like what you would get inside of a reese's cup mm, okay so it's, it's like, of, I don't know what you call that, pe- candy, peanut butter it, stuff. At any rate, it's a mystery. I'm not entirely convinced that the no jelly candy bar isn't actually part of the composite uh, conspiracy that is, uh, <laughs> that is uh, described in this film. All right, moving on. Uh, Christopher Lee, who uh, lived uh, 1922 through 2015, is in this as well. Um, Obviously, we've talked about Christopher Lee on the show before. This is Dracula. This is Saruman. This is Count Dooku. Uh, This is a guy that was in a ton of Hammer Horror movies. And in this film, he plays a mysterious UK government official. I think Christopher Lee's plotline was the most confusing of all of them to me until toward the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it it all comes together. Uh, And uh, I would say Lee's good in this. This is a, a role that plays to his strengths. Yeah, calm confidence. He's not quite as uh, as there's not as much twinkle in the eye as he is uh, when he's Lord Summer Isle, but it's mm-hmm. a similar kind of thing. He is he is overseeing some kind of secret process of depravity with great jollity. Yes. And then finally, we have Peter Cushing, who lived 1913 through 1994, and he plays Major Heinrich Benedict. Uh, this is a small but fun role where he plays a higher-ranking intelligence operative in that um, strange European trident country. Um, we, we've profiled Cushing at greater depth in the past, I believe, on our Shockwaves episode. But, uh, yeah, another another horror legend. Uh, this is um, uh, Dr. Frankenstein. This is Grand Moff Tar- uh, Tarkin. Um, he has no scenes with Lee or Price in the film. Uh, he's he's tightly contained within this uh, this mysterious European country. It's pretty much just a cameo, and it's yeah. it, it's one of a series of scenes where Marshall Jones, the the Conrad's character, uh, just kills his boss. I think this happens like three different times in the movie. Yeah. He goes into a meeting with his boss, and then within minutes, that boss is dead. Yeah, yeah. He has a, he has a signature move, which we'll describe here shortly. Uh, couple of quick uh, fun and useless facts here. Uh, this is one of only three films to feature uh, both Price and Lee. It's one of only four films to feature Cushing and Price. 
Uh, Lee and Cushing appeared in the same film an estimated 24 times, however, going back as far as Laurence Olivier's 1948 adaptation of Hamlet, in which Cushing played Osric and Lee played a palace guard in an uncredited role. Hmm. And I believe the only other film to feature all three of these gentlemen was House of Long Shadows from 1983, which also has John Carradine in it to boot. But doesn't every movie have John Carradine in it? I'm sure oh, yeah, he was yeah. in this. <laughs> All right, let's let's get to the music because the music's worth worth talking about. Um, not I have to say, not so much the score. Uh, the score is by David Whitaker, who lived 1931 through 2012, an English comp- composer who scored such films as Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde, Vampire Circus, and The Sword and the Sorcerer. It's an it's a perfectly acceptable score. I can't say anything too bad about it, but also I've already forgotten most of it. Oh, I don't know. The music kind of made an impression on me, uh, and, uh, and not just the rock music, which I know you're about to get to, but the, the background music kind of works because of the it, it heightens the absurdity of the movie. Like mm. there is a, a scene where a character wakes up to find like parts of his body have been cut off. And it's not giving you like, you know, minor chord music stings, the scary orchestral music. Instead, it's groovy lounge music just chugging <laughs> along during that part. Ding, 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 Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does work to establish a groovy late 60s, 1970 kind of tone, I guess. But speaking of which, let's get to the theme music. Yes, this is one of those those delicious movies that has a theme song in which somebody sings the title of the song. Uh, this is Scream and Scream Again, performed by uh, the Amen Corner. This is Welsh garage psych at its best. <laughs> yeah, this is a group, I, I, I had to look them up, they were only active from 1966 through 1969. So this movie may have may have done it. This could have been what did the group in, uh, as far as I know. But um, uh, they, they also appear in the movie. You see them in the nightclub performing this song while our vampire killer's stalking about. And uh, the, the two individuals of note in it, uh, that's Andy Fairweather Lowe, uh, born 1948 as the front man, a Welsh guitarist who went on to tour with the likes of Roger Waters and Eric Clapton. And then the keyboard player uh, is Welsh, Welsh musician Blue Weaver, born 1947, and he's worked as a session player for the likes of uh, the Bee Gees and the Pet Shop Boys over the years. Wow. So kind of neat. Uh, if possible, uh, we'll have to clear this uh, with Seth. It'd be nice to hear just a little bit of this uh, this groovy bit of uh, theme music. All right. Well, let's get into the plot of this. Let's let's tightly summarize the plot to scream and scream again. That is not possible. Uh, There is no way to really explain the plot of Scream and Scream again. You would just need to watch the movie. So instead, I suggest let's talk about some things that happen in the movie. Uh, So the first thing we see, we we pull up on – is this supposed to be in London? It's somewhere in England. Yeah. We see red double-decker buses with ads for crisp apples on them. Oh, yeah, it is London because we see London transit on the side of the bus. And we see a jogger, I think, get off one of the buses. Yeah, yeah. One of the first confusing things in the movie is here's this jogger, and they freeze frame him, and then they put up starring Vincent Price. And I'm like, that's not Vincent (laughs) Price. What, What are you doing, movie? 
That's great. Yeah. Uh, it's not Vincent Price at all. It's a young guy who has a face that kind of looks like George C. Scott. You know, yeah, he, yeah. he always looks like he's about to go, huh? What? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Mr. President, uh, but no, it's just a jogger wearing a, a tank top and, and some short orange shorts and he's jogging in a, I don't know if you got the same, uh, energy off this Rob, but he looks to me very uncomfortable and distressed throughout his entire jog. <laughs> yeah, I guess he does. But then he's running around, he runs through a field, he collapses. And then we cut to a totally different place. He wakes up. And he's like, where am I? And he's in a hospital bed. And uh, so he's laying there. He he seems to be thirsty. A nurse comes in. She gives him uh, like a tube of water to drink. And then he pulls back the blankets on his hospital bed after the nurse leaves. And he realizes that his leg is missing and he screams. So yeah. I guess this is the first scream of scream and scream again, because he will scream yeah. many more times. Yeah, it appears that his leg has been surgically removed in this uh, operating theater where he's being held. And so this scene will be repeated almost exactly like four more times because we, mm-hmm. we just come back and see all of his various body parts disappear and then he screams. Then, seemingly unrelated to this, there is this other plot taking place in this country where there's some kind of totalitarian symbology all around, these tridents or arrows. This is with Marshall Jones. He's wearing kind of a military uniform, and he's taking me. I, I honestly, I had trouble following what was happening in this subplot. It's just you know, he goes around. He'll take a meeting with some kind of other government official, and they'll talk about oh, you know, these uh, some kind of military hardware or some kind of uh, espionage situation. And then at the end of the meeting, he does the Vulcan neck pinch on this other person, usually somebody who seems to be his boss. And then they go. Ugh! And blood comes out of their mouth and they die. In retrospect, knowing what we know by the end of the film, I mean, is he kind of maybe like working his way up through the ranks via murder? I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think he's like killing various bosses or rivals and and becoming some kind of supreme commander within this totalitarian system. Mm-hmm. Then also within this place where we see all these these arrow or trident symbols – there's a scene where there's just a, a a guy and a lady running through a field, and then they get yep. chased down by a jeep full of soldiers, and then they get caught, and then the guy is taken to a prison, and there are there is what is implied to be like torture and interrogation. Yeah, yeah, we're not we don't have to watch a, t- a torture scene in this movie, but yes, it's heavily implied that he's about to torture, and then afterwards uh, he gets dressed down for torturing. Uh, yeah, so there's really yeah, no mystery about it. He's got bosses who come to come to him, the, the Conrad's character, and they're like, uh, "Hey, you're using too much torture. That's just <laughs> a little bit over the line with torture." And then he's like, "Okay, point taken." Uh, and then neck pinches them, and they die. Yeah, this is like the, the Peter Cushing scene that's that's rather nice because like there's there's a scene to set it up where, uh, but then we get the we get Peter Cushing's character and Conrad's together, and he's like, he's like it's just too much torture, my boy. We we have to worry about optics with this uh, regime, and uh, I'm sorry, you're done, you're through through with, We're out the door with you, and then he gets the claw, and that's it for Cushing's character. Well, wouldn't have Cushing put the paperwork in motion before that meeting? You would think so. Yeah, well, this is it becomes more and more clear that that Conrad's is perhaps a bit rogue, right? Because yeah. um 
because it, it, at first it seems like that whatever he's doing, it's entirely going to take place within this uh, this fictional nation. But no, he eventually sets uh, sets sail or doesn't really set sail. How does he travel to England? We don't see it. I don't think yeah. we, he just suddenly shows up in London toward the end of the movie. Yeah, he catches wind of this whole vampire killer thing and perhaps some other stuff, and he's like, well, i got to go there now and start clawing people. Oh, oh, but okay, so this brings us to what I would say is the dominant uh, plot thread of the movie, the vampire killer plot. Mm-hmm. So we meet uh, we meet Belliver, the police inspector, and uh, and several other police officers who start tracking a series of brutal murders. There are murders in which women are being attacked by an unknown assailant, and he appear and they and they like uh, appear drained of all blood. So one of the first victims, it turns out, is a is an employee of. Vincent Price's, and this leads the police to Vincent Price's house, and this is the scene where we first meet him. And they're like, hey, uh, what about this employee of yours? Can you shed any light on what's going on? And he's like, hmm, no, but uh, don't suspect me. (laughs) (laughs) Does anything of consequence happen in this first meeting, or is it basically just to introduce Price? Basically, yeah, just to introduce Price. Uh, uh, Nothing nothing really happens. In fact, you kind of forget about it until – Vincent Price just kind of pops up again later, and you're like, oh, this character. Yeah, and then – so this is also where the medical examiner gets involved, Dr. Mm-hmm. Sorrell or Sorrell. Uh, he, so he's originally in these autopsy scenes of, of the murder victims, but he gets wrapped up in the police investigation itself and starts being along for uh, the, these, these chases and all this stuff. And what a chase. What a chase it is. <laughs> yeah, so let's lead up to that because this is – Wow, this movie has such a chase scene. So because these murders keep happening, the police decide, well, we're going to set up a sting operation and we're going to get Officer Bradford here, Helen Bradford. Uh, She's going to pretend to just be like uh, a lady partying at the club and we're going to see if she gets murdered by this uh, by the vampire killer. Which, by the way, apparently they just have her party all night because when eventually yeah. she is picked up by the vampire killer and they leave the club, it's just broad daylight. Like not, yes. like, not like dawn, but it feels like it's noon. Exactly. Yeah, they come out. And th- this shocked me as well. So inside, uh, I think uh, I think that, that Welsh rock group is playing or somebody mm-hmm. like them is playing. Uh, you know, we're getting the songs and then they come out the door and, yeah, it's just bright sunlight. And then they get into – uh, the vampire killer sports car. I think the character's name is Keith, the, mm-hmm. the creepy Keith, looking guy. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. We don't we don't find that out till later, but this is is Keith. Yeah, and we, we've seen him. We've seen seen him murder other women that he picked up at the club before. Uh, so so we know what's going to happen. And then uh, the cops, of course, are bumbling doofuses, and they take way too long to intervene while he is drinking uh, Bradford's blood. But they get there just in time. She's not killed. Uh, so they like pull him out of the car and you think, okay, well, he's caught now. But no, something strange happens. Instead, they get Michael Gothard out of the car and they say, you're caught now. But he has super strength or something. It's out of nowhere. We've seen no indication of this before, really. He like fights them all off and he runs away. And this begins a chase sequence that involves driving, it involves running, it involves hiding, it involves <laughs> climbing, it involves mountain climbing, it involves yeah. boiling yourself in acid. This is a chase sequence 
that goes on for, I would guess, literally 20 minutes. Right. And you, you keep thinking it's over, too. You're like, yes. okay, they got him. Uh, and then something will happen, and he's on the move again. And we just hope that all of our uh, police officers are able to catch their breath a little bit before they take after him. Because, again, Keith seems to have supernatural uh, strength and uh, agility and endurance. Uh, he's able to do things that humans cannot should not be able to do. He's basically Spider-Man in a few of these scenes. And I wanted to compare this to the fight scene between Roddy Piper and Keith David in the <laughs> John Carpenter movie, They Live, which is an amazing, hilarious scene. And this chase scene was a lot like it because, it, first of all, it's something that just mounts in uh, in in hilarious absurdity because of how long it goes on, but not just because of how long it goes on, because of the fact that it repeatedly stops and you think it's over and then it starts again. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and they live, they'll, they'll, they're like punching, punching, body slam, body slam, and they stop and talk for a minute and you're like, okay, well, what, what's happening now? And then one of them will just throw another punch and it starts <laughs> up. This chase is exactly like this. They catch him and they're like, okay, and then he like rips his own arm off to get out of the handcuffs and runs yep. again. <laughs> and again, all just broad daylight too, which somehow adds to that absurdity because it's it feels like he can't actually get away and hide as well, especially when they get to the scene where they've cornered him against the side of a mountain uh, with all these loose rocks. And he just starts taking straight his way, just going straight up the mountain, kind of like Spider-Man a few times, just yes. uh, crazy speed. And the, the cops are just watching him. And then eventually he like tires out or slips and falls all the way back down the mountain again. <laughs> but how does this whole chase end? Well, strangely, Michael Gothard ends up in his, in his uh, satin purple shirt, leading the cops on a chase that ends at Vincent Price's house. Remember mm. Vincent Price from earlier, that random guy? Well, yes, yeah. they, he shows up at his house and he goes into a barn on the estate and he lifts up like a like a uh, a you know trap door on the ground in the floor of the barn and jumps into some kind of pool underneath the trap door which turns out to be acid. Like a cop reaches in to try to fish him out of there and it burns his arm. So he has apparently just plunged himself into Hollywood acid. Right. And then they even mentioned, it's like, well, that cop's going to lose that arm now. So this is, this is powerful acid. There's no, not even any attempt to try and like fish uh, Keith's body out of here. They're like, well, <laughs> that's it for Keith. He's gone. Completely gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't they get like a metal pole or something? Yeah. Well, we, later we see that there, Vincent Price's character does have a pole for, just like shoving things down into the acid vat. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where we go now. Like suddenly they're, they're watching this. You're looking down in the yellow acid uh, vat that has just dissolved and eaten Keith. It's just burned a police officer's arm. And then Vincent Price just kind of wanders up behind them and, and that doesn't even say anything. He's just kind of like, hello. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And he explains it, right? They're, they're like, well, why do you have this tub of, uh, of body dissolving acid in your house? And he's like, oh, yeah, I've got a story about that. Yeah, basically, it's that he does cancer research. And uh, and yeah, remember, folks, always store your medical waste disposal vats of boiling acid responsibly, uh, preferably in a trap door in one of your outbuildings. This is just standard practice. I know we have some uh, some researchers and doctors out there uh -huh. uh, listening to the show. I mean, you guys know, know how it is. You just you got to have a vat of boiling acid around in case you need to dissolve any medical waste. You, when your grandkids come over, you got to remind them, don't play around the acid. 
Yeah. <laughs> no running near the acid. So they seem the the investigators seem more or less satisfied with the story, despite yeah. the fact that okay. he is also linked to the uh, the location. At least is linked to an earlier murder. Uh, and they're like, well, how, do you know Keith? Like, how come, like, Keith clearly killed somebody who worked for you, and then he came back here to throw himself into a vat of acid. And Vincent Price's character is like, well, you know, the mind of the psychopath, it has, typically has a lot of guilt involved and um, yeah. a, a very high threshold for pain. And they're like, yeah, yeah it checks out. Yeah, suicide by acid matches the enormity of the crime. Yes. <laughs> Oh, it's good. But, oh, but they're like, but we still have a clue. We can figure out who this guy was because we still have his hand. Because earlier, Mm -hmm. after he fell off the mountain, the cops handcuffed him to a car. Then he ripped his own hand off to escape. And they still have the hand. Right. And Vincent Price's character is a little shocked and perhaps a little worried about this. Yes. uh, Because, lo and behold, not all of Keith was dissolved. That's right. So they go, uh, the medical examiners are looking at the hand and, I didn't fully understand this. They, they try to explain. They're like, the hand, it's not human or it's not organic. And then the cops are like, what do you mean by that? And they say, well, it's not exactly artificial. It's synthetic. But I didn't understand the distinction they were making. Yeah, this didn't make a lot of sense because we later find out, yeah, that this is about repurposing of parts of making entirely new people out of pieces harvested from other humans. There's no indication that there are synthetic parts in the process. Yeah. Or maybe there are and they just don't tell us about it. I don't know. Well, anyway, someone ends up breaking into the morgue or the police station, wherever it is, to steal the hand from from evidence. And they store it in a really secure location. It appears to be on a pillar in the middle of a room. (laughs) Didn't they put put something over it when they're like a – or maybe there wasn't. They just shut the door. They shut the door to the room. Yeah, I Um. think it's literally – that's it. They shut the door to the room, which is like glass French doors. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But literally, the severed hand in evidence is just on like a platform on a pillar in the middle of the room. And somebody breaks in to steal it. And wouldn't you know it, the person who breaks in to steal it is that nurse we saw earlier in the movie who was repeatedly Mm. coming into the room of the guy who was getting amputated and and screamed and screamed again. That's right. The jogger. It's all coming together. It is. And so this is when things start being like, oh, maybe it will make sense in the end. Uh, oh, and, and somebody comes in to be like, hey, you can't take that hand. And the nurse just slaps the person so hard it kills them. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, meanwhile, our, our the closest thing this movie has to a hero, our, our young blonde medical examinator, uh, me- examinator, examiner guy, uh, he, he's like, hey, uh, wh- what's going on with this case? And the police tell him, well, the case is closed. You know, uh, Keith jumped into the acid and that's that. Uh, but he's not satisfied. He's taken it too personal. He wants to know what's going on with the hand. Um, so – Ultimately, he and Bradford, the undercover officer who got her blood drank by Michael Gothard, they go to Vincent Price's house together. That's right. They start – basically, he's like, you stay in the car. I'm going to go in and find the hand. If 
something bad happens, just honk the horn and I'll come back. Or if I don't come back, call the police. And so he goes in, he looks around, doesn't find anything. Here's the honk, comes back out, car's gone. <laughs> Panics, Whoops. goes back in. Meanwhile, we get some resolution on the political plot. So we see uh, we, we see Conrad's the the creepy guy from the from the totalitarian state. He somehow gets in touch with Christopher Lee, and Christopher Lee uh, uh, Christopher Lee appears to be some kind of uh, a British agent. He, the uh, Conrad's is from this other country. They clearly have an existing relationship, and mm-hmm. they may be involved in some kind of double dealing or conspiracy. We're not sure exactly what, but they they meet up. And Conrad's is like, uh, okay, we've captured one of your spies. So finally, we're like, oh, okay, the guy who was getting chased in the other country earlier, mm-hmm. uh, he was like a a pilot of a secret spy plane. And he says, you know, it could be very embarrassing for the British government if uh, if this were to get out. So here, here's what we'll do. We'll give him back to you or we'll just eliminate him, wh- whatever you want, as long as you give me all of the police files on the so-called vampire murders. And here, mm. finally, this is connecting to that plot line. And Christopher Lee's character is like, okay, that works. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, so Conrad's, uh, he goes and he gets all the files that he needs. He poses as a sociologist doing research on psychos. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I say that because the movie repeatedly, it like it refers to psychos as a, yeah. as a known police <laughs> phenomenon. And it seems like there's going to be a clean break here because we, we, yeah. we have, uh, uh, we have our, our, our chief investigator here. Um, Belver uh, pop in and he's like, oh, here you go. Here's, here's all the documents. Uh, you can look at them in the next room and he goes to leave and Conrad's is like, oh no, I'm, I'm taking them with me. And he's like, nope, you can't do that. So he gets the claw. The, the Vulcan neck pinch once yeah. again. And uh, oh, Belver's dead now. Yeah. But uh, now there's nothing standing in his way. Uh, so he takes all these documents and I can't remember if we see him destroy them, but it's later revealed that, yeah, he just destroyed all of it. So here we come to the finale. The finale is uh, the the young medical examiner. Ex- Why do I keep saying examiner? The young medical examiner, uh, Sorel. He goes back to Vincent Price's house and he's looking around. Um, does he? What 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 happens actually? I can't remember how he ends up. Does he get captured? Or does he just sneak in? He just sneaks in. I think he just sneaks in. Yeah, yeah. and just kind of runs into them, right? And. Vincent Price's uh, character, the the strange doctor, is just kind of like, "Hey, uh, you, you you seem curious. How would you like a tour?" And he's like, "Yes, please." Yes. And, well, actually, I really liked the way this monologue was written for Price because he actually explains why he's monologuing. He's like, mm-hmm. "I have to do all this in secret. I'm very proud of my work, but because it's, I don't get to talk to anybody, I never get a chance to show off. So I, I'm I'm just excited to tell you about it." And this is also really a point in the movie where I just felt like I, we had gone past midnight. Like there was there were no rules anymore. There was no telling where this film was going to actually go, which I found rather exciting. Yes, yes, totally. So here we finally get the full plot explained with visual demonstrations. And it is that Vincent Price and some other unnamed co-conspirators in other countries are employing secret new surgical techniques to create new humans, composite humans built out of the parts of these murder victims. Yes. And and that Michael Gothard, Keith, the murderer, was one of his composites, was like the first 
uh, composite human he built with like brain with its own brain function, and the nurse and like other servants in Vincent Price's house are also composite humans. Yeah, so they're all composite humans with super strength. They're in on this conspiracy. Um, again, there are a lot of questions you might ask about like how this is supposed to work and all, but it, it, it takes me back to the scene where Conrad's is talking to Christopher Lee's character and he's like, look, I'm not going to explain to you, uh, what's going on. You wouldn't believe me if I did. And so we have to kind of trust him on that. Like whatever the, the particulars are, it's, it's above us mere humans to understand. Yes. Though I think it is interesting in that it's unlike normal mad scientist, uh, plot reveal because normally the mad scientist reveals himself to be working alone yeah. and says, I am the only person who's discovered something and I want to do that thing. And of course it's something with horrifying implications. That's all the case here, except price reveals. He is sort of in contact with other people doing this around the world. Yeah. It's a conspiracy plot They're They're like, we're working together though. It seems like they don't really know each other. Or they only have minimal contact because later Conrad's comes in and he is clearly part of this conspiracy with Vincent price, but they've never met before. He doesn't recognize him when he sees him. He has to identify himself. Yeah, and that yeah, that think that's something that's rather interesting about it as well because there's no there doesn't seem to be any mastermind behind it all. It's almost like a, a you know a headless organization, yeah. uh, un, totally non centralized. And uh, yeah, Conrad's character shows up though, and he's like, "Hey, uh, the vampire killer thing has gotten way out of hand. Uh, not only is did Keith need to be destroyed, not only did did, uh, did the documents about Keith need to be destroyed." But I actually need to, need to go ahead and shut down everything you've got going on here, and, and including your helpers. Including you. Including yeah. you, Vincent Price. You're going to go in the acid. So the rest of the movie is various things going in the acid. <laughs> yeah. Because Conrad's and Vincent Price's character, they start fighting. And it's this is actually, I never expected to see a, a fight sequence with with Vincent Price uh, that's so so good. Like, I was like rooting for him because yeah. ultimately Conrad's is just absolutely villainous. Whereas at least Vincent Price thinks he's the good guy. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to side with him. And so it looks like he's going to succumb to the claw. And then uh, he fights back and fights out of the claw. And you're like, yeah, go Vincent Price. Yeah. I think the characters are equally villainous, but Vincent yeah. Price is Vincent Price. So, yeah. you know, they, yeah. So I was rooting for him too. Uh, so the, yeah, it's, it's evil spy versus evil spy and they're fighting and, and who wins? It's Vincent Price. He, yeah. he beats Conrad's and he puts him in the acid, but then, uh oh, uh oh, another, another party shows up and it's Christopher Lee. Yeah. And he strolls in very cool, very much in command. And there's this wonderful scene. There, there are several different scenes in the picture that are creatively shot, but especially this one where, um, he ultimately ends up sort of hypnotizing, uh, Vincent Price's character. We get this weird shot that kind of goes uh, up and uh, below Vincent Price's face with kind of a black background. Mm -hmm. And then he's in the acid. But now it's also clear that Christopher Lee is part of this conspiracy as well. And he must also be a composite. I don't think they ever say that, but he's got the super strength as well. Right. So he's got to be part of it. Um so it doesn't seem the conspiracy is defeated in the end. It just seems that these two guys, Christopher, uh, or sorry, uh, Conrad's and, and Dr. Browning, uh, Vincent Price's character, well, they get destroyed. But the overall conspiracy seems to have been saved by one of its members, Christopher Lee. 
Yeah, and they have several lines that, that allude to the fact that the conspiracy, again, is, is not centralized. And so there's room for sort of heresies within the conspiracy, rogues mm. within the conspiracy. So while Conrad's seems to have the opinion that like, well, this is not working in a free democratic society. The conspiracy is much further along back where I come from in, uh, in Trident, Sylvania or wherever. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, uh, 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 Vincent Price's character has, has you know, this sort of, uh, you know, rosier glasses view of things about how, you know, well, we're going to, we need to cut out the bad parts, you know, and we need to make sure we're, we're, we're getting rid of the bad composite people. But ultimately, we're in the right, going in the right direction. Uh, but we need to, you know, stop the bad parts of the, of the, plot before it gets goes too far meanwhile christopher lee's character like ba- he like basically says no it's too late for all that like we're we're on the train to uh, to uh, to horror and uh, and tyranny and uh there's no turning back and i'm not only am i not going to stand in its, in its way i am going to ensure that it happens right so he disposes of the rest and then he walks out and our our Sort of human heroes, or at least implied human heroes, uh, Doctor Sorrell and uh, and Officer Bradford, they are alive and they have escaped because uh, Bradford again was going to be was going to be dismembered by Vincent Price, but then uh, Sorrell intervened and and like he got her out of there and they escaped and they get into Christopher Lee's car with him, <laughs> yeah, and Christopher Lee's like you know I'll give you a ride, but um. The ending, I don't know what you made of this. They, the two humans were kind of smiling at Christopher Lee as if like they knew what was going on and they were in on it or something. But that wouldn't make any sense given the rest of the plot. I think they were just trusting in him, not realizing that he is at the heart of, of all the, uh, okay. the conspiracy as well. They're just, so, they're, yeah. yeah, they're just really happy the government's here. Yeah. <laughs> But the, but they do end it on a nice kind of ambiguous note that's not too doomy. It's not just like and then he cut up our our hero uh, and the and, and uh, the woman he saved. Uh, no, it's it's, it's more amb- ambiguous than that. Uh, but it but some doom is definitely definitely implied. It is a short term happy ending, but long term ominous ending. Yeah, yeah. And once it really hits, once it sinks in, not only do you scream, but then you scream a second time. And then about six more times. And then six more, yeah, just to just to, to make sure. I mean, again, this movie is triple distilled. This movie is so strange and so unique, and I'm trying to think what exactly. Ab- I mean, I guess it's mostly the structure and the fact that it's so baffling for so long is yeah. is the main thing about it uh, that that really makes it so unusual and striking, and the the fact that it can be baffling for so long and actually make sense at the end. Yeah, and you ultimately end up in a place where the the plot holes become features. They become spaces for mystery that work well in a picture like this. And that chase scene is going to stick with me for years. I'm going to be thinking back to Michael Gothard in that purple shirt, mm-hmm. climbing the mountain, and then ripping his arm off. <laughs> so good. So yeah, this is a really fun picture uh, that invites interpretation. So we'd love to hear from anyone out there who has seen it, uh, either you know back in the old days or has seen it recently. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on how things shake out in the movie. Maybe maybe you're familiar with the book and can chime in on that as well. I'm sure it's great literature. Oh yeah, yeah the the Saxon brand. <laughs> 
All right. Well, Weird House Cinema publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns, most scientific topics and so forth, and just talk about a weird film. And yeah, this was a weird one. Uh, This was a fun one. We hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, If you want to find blog posts about these episodes, I put up some casual blogs over at samudamusic.com. And we have a letterboxed uh, account for Weird House Cinema. You can look that up. I think where our, our username there is Weird House. And I try and keep that updated with what we've covered and sometimes what we're about to cover. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.